Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a sunny spring morning here in the capital is Malik Khan. Malik is the manager of Midland Care UK, a home care agency based in Birmingham. And under his leadership, Midland Care has established itself as an outstanding care provider with the Care Quality Commission. Uh, Malik, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a a pleasure welcoming you with us as well, Malik. And um, given that we are still very much in the grip of the COVID-19 situation as we record this podcast in late May 2021, um, I'd like to understand to what extent the last year has affected you and affected your company, given that you've been very much on the front line throughout. Um. In terms of pandemic, uh, COVID-19 is uh, affected uh, really badly to everyone across the world, and especially into the health uh, and social care sector. Uh, as ourselves, we are the elderly care provider. And, uh, we were visiting people, uh, elderly people and vulnerable people living alone in their own houses or as uh, some lives with their families. And it was really panic when it started uh, uh, March uh, 2020 when we went into the lockdown. A lot of people were very worried about that the carers are going into different houses to see different people and they might bring the virus to their loved ones. Uh, Also, a lot of service users and their families, they cancel their services because they don't want to catch the virus. Uh, and then other people stop coming to see their parents or their loved ones, the carers coming there, and they might catch the virus. And in, when the relatives, the families, the children stop coming to see the elderly people, um, they're getting more worried that why they're not coming to see them because people with dementia and the virus they were more confused. They look suddenly why my son stopped and my daughter's not coming. And they're always talking about them. And that was quite stressing for them. Uh, and the family was worried about the carer. Also, it uh, affected the carers when they were going out. They were more worried about the FB catch the virus. And their family was worried that they're working in the community. And uh, what will happen if one of the carers catch the virus and when they get back home the rest of the family catch the virus so they have to isolate uh, and cut off from all the families so that was really very stressing uh, situation for all the uh, staff and the service user and uh, uh, the first few months uh, until the vaccination started and COVID that was widely available uh, it was uh, quite 
uh, hard uh, for us to work and the PPE uh, which was uh, previously available on very reasonable prices suddenly gone up and uh, unavailable in the market and gone very expensive uh, so that was another um, like um, uh, impact on the care businesses uh, like buying uh, PPE uh, uh, from the market uh, that was quite high prices uh, later uh, down the road and uh, just supported and providing uh, PPE so that was uh, again helpful a lot of help uh, uh, we all um, had difficult time uh, what we done then how we decided to come over all these uh, issues uh, our service user was our priority to make sure they are comfortable, they stay in touch with their families and make sure they are happy and they know what's going on. So we arranged video callings to the family through the WhatsApp and social media. Uh, when uh, we visiting the service user, then we uh, given our numbers to the family and asked them to contact us on the WhatsApp or the FaceTime. Uh, and they can see their parents and parents can see them and they can talk to them on the video calling. So that was satisfying them that look, somebody's, uh, and they are okay and they're, they're still in touch, but they can't visit for some reason. Then the other issue was that, like, family was sporting, uh, shopping, weekly shopping, they, they do weekly shopping. They, they do their weekly shopping, uh, and uh, that was another issue that how they will keep going without family coming. So we organized that for them, that we will collect their weekly shopping from the shops, either family can do online order, and they tell us what time the delivery will be coming, so we make sure uh, the carers stay at that time with the services that receive their shopping and store in the right place or those who are unable to do online shopping, then we do shopping for our service user and then send the receipts to the family so they can reimburse the money that we done their shopping according to their requirements. Then the other thing was visiting GPs and collecting prescriptions and medication. That was another issue that doctors not coming out when somebody's ill. Uh, and how we support them. So uh, again, uh, we was making a phone call. We staying longer uh, with the service user because uh, when the doctor will call back and have a telephonic consultation, and sometimes they asking like uh, having a video chat with them and they send the pictures to uh, them. That, for example, if there is a sore or something, so then we were supporting extra with that uh, for the medical appointments and then collecting their prescriptions from the pharmacies to make sure they get their medication on time and started and they have right treatment as well. On the other side, the carers, uh, well, we had difficulties that few carers in our team and left the jobs because families were worried that now you're going out and uh, you're supporting other people, you might catch the virus and then you're coming home and you got family at home and uh, there was family pressures on people as well 
so few people left the job due to pandemic and then later they rejoined after a few months back uh, when things uh, settled in when people realized that okay there's a vaccine available now we can test available and things so then they come back to the team and they rejoin it but we had like in the beginning first few months it was a difficult time uh, where everybody was panicking what will happen uh, so which is a like in residential home and nursing home people were not allowed to visit their parents and things uh, so it was uh, all uh, panic and fear uh, that what will happen a lot of people and families uh, uh, people died and people was listening news and all that so it was all like kind of a panic in the beginning really but uh, as things goes down like it financially impact on all the organizations yeah. uh, especially the care sector badly affected because of uh, we have to purchase the uh, extra equipment uh, um, all the PPEs uh, spend extra time with the services therefore uh, like shopping or for example uh, doctor's appointments telephonic consultations collecting their prescriptions and supporting them like uh, the things family and relatives are doing like the housework tidying laundry etc then care has to take over those uh, tasks and we did all that on voluntary basis like Uh, we didn't charge from the service users because uh, their care was funded or uh, consuls was saying and then going through the review process it was quite difficult again to get all things sorted on time so uh, though our care get paid but we as organization we did not charge from the service user where the support was extra support was required provide extra support uh, free of charge to all our service users as they required. Uh, so that was a financial impact. Also, then what we tried, like uh, keep the minimum of stuff to like a continuity, like uh, reduce the level of uh, uh, staff visiting to individuals. So we try like one or two staff to visit the same person every day instead of sending different people uh, because that's minimizing the Uh, risk of uh, infection and spread. Mm-hmm. So less people see somebody will be the less uh, risk of uh, infection. So that was uh, the other thing, like uh, keeping enough uh, stuff in place. They like uh, uh, visiting uh, minimum services, uh, minimum staff, but they still need to get paid their regular hours. Uh, not, uh, like they get the right pay right? <laughs> so that was another financial impact on the care sector so I think uh, we managed we did and uh, the support come afterwards uh, like uh, infection control funds and all that but like uh, again the government issued uh, infection control fund which uh, the big part being allocated to the nursing home and residential home and domiciliary care didn't get that much uh, out of it. But still, there was a, some help available. But it didn't really cover the full cost. So, yeah. uh, I feel that like uh, during the pandemic, uh, domiciliary care especially, 
uh, it's a really difficult time and all the people providing the service there had a great job uh, and supported uh, their service user uh, in the community and uh, make sure they are protected and they get the right level of care as well. It's been a hugely challenging time for the care sector, hasn't it? But despite all of the struggles of the last year, do you think the care sector has learnt a lot from the COVID pandemic and will be stronger for this experience? Uh, we have learned a lot. We have learned a lot, like a lot of new things uh, we put in place. We learned that how to deal in this kind of uh, situation, um, like uh, using the technology, especially like uh, uh, when pandemic started and lockdown. So. Uh, the carer can't come to the staff meetings or supervisions or things and training especially. So we have to continue doing that. We can't leave carer without training and supervisions and meetings and the communication. So we adopted the technology. And so where we was having a group meeting in the office and discussions one-to-one, then we use the technology like um, Zoom and uh, team meetings. Uh, we made uh, a staff meeting. We had uh, all the staff to attend a staff meeting via Zoom or team meeting. And uh, uh, also we done the supervision then over the Zoom uh, and uh, discuss stuff. It was training, online training. Uh, we had most of the training before we were providing like uh, class-based learning. And now, uh, during the pandemic, we use the technology and online training. We provided to all the staff in the area to go with all the training requirements, especially with infection control. And uh, uh, so, yeah, we, everybody, I believe, all other organizations can understand that they all adapted. We have, uh, like, developed the managers, uh, we used to have a manager's network. Uh, it was uh, like quarterly meetings, but now with uh, the uh, skills for care, the managers network, so we're having regular uh, uh, meetings and WhatsApp groups and all that, like supporting each other, sharing uh, our resources as well. We uh, shared our resources with other uh, providers uh, in the area where there was sort of equipment and uh, sort of staff, so we supported each other. Uh, so we learned uh, how to uh, stay connected with the people and with our services and families. Uh, so like uh, quality reviews and annual reviews, monthly reviews were doing uh, like we were visiting the people and inviting families and discussing any concerns and issues. Uh, we set up all online like uh, telephonic uh, reviews and uh, online uh, uh, reviews with the families. Uh, so uh, we did not give up that okay, with pandemic, with lockdown, we can't do this. But we changed the way how to do it more effectively uh, without uh, going to someone or minimizing the risk. Uh, and uh, we learned uh, it's a uh, uh, Everybody, I think, uh, come through uh, with this pandemic. Uh, it's been over a year now, and uh, 
we all learned different things um, and developed uh, all our strategies and uh, skills and how to cope with difficult situations such as this pandemic. Mm, that's really positive. And thinking about the future of the care sector now, just before we do wrap things up, um, Malik, I'd be interested to understand what you sort of see coming on the horizon for Midland Care UK and for the wider care industry over the next year as we hopefully move out of the pandemic and also where you would like your company to be this time in a year. Um. Same like others, uh, we like Midland Care to be on top as we are the outstanding care provider and we like to be outstanding and we're working hard to maintain our outstanding standard. Uh, there are difficulties and uh, barriers, uh, especially the financial difficulties like uh, um, we did not get much of uh, uh like uh, increasement in like hourly rates and all that what the care staff doing the hard work uh, and uh, we're still working on like the uh, care sector is in the like the, where the funding uh, is uh, very low rates uh, paid by the councils which is uh, like break even or sometimes like uh, when we go extra mile we have to sometimes pay from the pocket but uh, we're looking that uh, this pandemic will be over. We're hoping that the government will review the situation, the funding. Uh, the difficult situation is at the moment that as the pandemic affected everybody across the world, a lot of people fighting to come to the care sector as uh, to join the workforce. And uh, we are really, everybody across the country struggling to recruit uh, uh, the people uh, to provide the care to our elderly. Uh, even prior to pandemic, uh, there was shortage of uh, care staff, and uh, we were part of the national recruitment campaign for adult and social care. But due to pandemic, it's uh, put down a lot of people to join the sector because they are frightened that most people get infection and all that. So, uh, if um, I mean, I will request and suggest the government to look into that sector, uh, like uh, allow, allowing the care sector to recruit uh, care staff uh, from abroad, like from other countries, if uh, there's no care staff available locally. Uh, we advertise the post uh, throughout the pandemic, and we're still advertising, but not many people coming forward to join at the moment. And uh, I think uh, when government planning uh, and looking into the care sector has to support. Uh, I think that is one of uh, the key elements that uh, how we recruit care staff and uh, if we are not able to recruit locally we should have uh, opportunity uh, to recruit a staff from other part of the world where people come and uh, deliver their service. Uh, to our vulnerable adults because it's an aging population, it's uh, growing and demand is growing, but we are short of our stuff everywhere. 
Certainly going to be an interesting time for the sector, isn't it, to see if it can sort of tackle the recruitment shortfall that it's going to see in the uh, the future as a result of the COVID situation. Um, I have to yeah. say, Malik, um, it's been a real eye-opening experience for me welcoming you onto the show and understanding what's going on in the care sector. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And do also take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on because we're almost out of the pandemic, but we're not quite there yet. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Malik. And um, next up on the programme today, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, a politician who enjoyed a distinguished political career during his time in the Commons, despite being blind from birth. He will be joining us on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere. 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it would be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it what's the one king uh, key thing that secure needs to do to restore labor as an election winning party i think secure starmer's major challenge is to convince Skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.